LegalizeFreedom.com Why are we here? Where do we come from? Where are we going? From the nature of reality to the future of humanity. Listen without limits. Unchain your brain. Change your thinking. Change your life. LegalizeFreedom.com Greetings and welcome once again to LegalizeFreedom.com. I'm your host Greg Moffat and my guest today is Bjorn Andreas Bullhansen who joins us to discuss humanity's present plight and what we may salvage from the past to save us in future. A deep malaise infects contemporary culture. Ever greater tremors shake industrial civilization to its core. Societal disintegration looms large. In response, governments pursue ever more draconian methods of control. Our fundamental freedoms are undermined by gathering oppression, our minds clouded by propaganda and lies. All of these are symptoms of a shattered psyche, a disconnection from the natural world and the vast web of life and the disenchanted view of the cosmos. If we are to survive and thrive in future, we must remember what we have forgotten and with humility understand how much we still have to learn. Hello and welcome Bjorn and thank you so much for joining us today on LegalizeFreedom.com. Well, thank you for having me. Now, today Bjorn, we're going to be talking about your writing work and also your passion for the great outdoors amongst other things. Uh, before we jump into that, for listeners who are not aware of what you do, uh, just give us a little potted bio about your, your career and your work in general. Yeah, well, I'm uh, I'm a novelist, and I have written. I think I'm, I think I'm actually writing on my twentieth novel right now. Not not right in this moment, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm also a YouTuber, and um, I I started on YouTube because I wanted to document some of the things I do to research for my novels, um, in particular. Um, the Viking Age and uh, my hands-on research. So there's a bit of that on my channel as well as I, I try to talk about things that uh, I have on my mind. I've been talking about men's mental health a lot lately and um, yeah, but I, I'm mainly a, uh, a novelist and uh, I have to say straight away that uh, my agent um, is working on having my novels published in English, but they they haven't landed a uh, a book deal for me yet, uh, because uh, lots of people are asking. <laughs> you know, well, that, you, you read my mind because that was the, the next thing I was going to point out that I hadn't seen um, English editions, particularly of the the Viking novels. But is any of your uh, work available in English at, at all? No, um, not in English, but in, uh, well, I can't remember all the languages. There's, a, I think there are nine or ten now. Yeah. Uh, but, uh, you know, the, my B-U-L-L hyphen H-A-N-S-E-N dot com. Bull 
www.jeremy-hansen.com. Shameless self-promotion there. That's my uh, my blog, and I keep an, a list there on my novels and in which languages you can read them. Um, so, <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I came to your work. I discovered you on YouTube, like many people no doubt have. And the thing that uh, drew me in first was your work in bushcraft, as some people would call it, you know, outdoor skills, a lot of many traditional yeah. skills. Mm. And you mentioned that you were participating in a lot of this and tried to educate yourself and learn um, as a way of researching and, and, you know, trying to get a feel for, for the Viking age. So uh, did the interest in the outdoors predate your, your writing? Um, about Viking culture, um, or did, was it the other way around, or were they were they always kind of uh, twin threads of interest in your life? Well, I think I was interested in the Viking. I know I was interested in the Viking Age long before I was allowed to go out camping in the woods uh, because my I, I, my my parents tell me that when I was a little little boy, I would. Uh, I would play uh, with, uh, you know, swords and, uh, and things like that. Not real swords, but uh, um, even though that was in the 70s in Norway. But, <laughs> no, I, I've always been uh, very fascinated by the Viking Age. Um, so the, um, the outdoors that came a little bit later through, you know, the Boy Scouts and things like that. So, uh, but now it's, it's kind of, it's all the same for me, to me now, in a way. It feels, uh, even, even when I'm, I'm out hiking with modern gear, I do, most of the time I walk literally among the grave mounds of the people who lived here many, many, Hundreds and thousands of years ago. So it is, uh, it's hard to separate the two. Now, large cities are not simply an artifact of the modern age. I think some people who don't have got perhaps a very narrow reading of history think that truly mm. large cities are something that have happened in the last couple of hundred years. But of course, in antiquity, in the, you know, empires of Greece and Rome, there were huge cities, many thousands of people together. Some of them suffered from some of the maladies that cities bring with them, you know, and, and a disconnection from the wider world around them. But I suppose in, in ancient times, the, the extent of the, the spiritual dimension of life or the religious belief kept many people in tune with the earth in a way that has been lost in secular and atheistic times. And I don't know if you would describe yourself as, as having any form of spirituality, but certainly separation from nature and the the negative effects of that is a theme that I've come back to again and again over the last, you know, 10 years of doing this with many people from many different perspectives, you know, thinkers, writers, researchers coming from all across the spectrum. And it's something that I, I think I've been take, carrying with me throughout my life. And I've only seen this separation increase. I think that uh, if people get separated from nature, a lot of negative things start to happen. Um, people get restless, they get unhappy and depressed, and also they tend to lose a sense of who they are. Um, and it's very easy to see that now. In Now, I don't live in a big city myself, 
I could never live in a big city or a city at all. But I, I have been to big cities, and it's what strikes me is that there are rules and regulations everywhere, and that that's that's something I think people who live there they don't think about that. But um, I'm to be blunter. Uh, I <laughs> I have to say this. I always say this. It's not healthy for a man to live in a place where he can't urinate wherever he wants to. If you get my meaning. <laughs> by, by that I mean that obviously you can't do that in a, in a big city. Although I was in Los Angeles and well, uh, to judge from the smell, well, people, but, have, um, people have got to go. They've got to go. Yeah. Well, no, it's, it seems like, People are more unhappy when they live in a big city. Um, we're not meant to walk on concrete. We're not meant to be boxed in in buildings and rooms all the time. And I think my... I don't even like the word spir- spiritual... spirit. What do you call it? Spirituality. Excuse my English. I don't even like it because it's, it shouldn't be something that's separated from other parts of your life and the connection with the land is something that we all should have i call myself a heathen when people ask and um that's different from being a pagan mm-hmm. now a heathen uh, means that you're a man of the land and you're connected to the land in a spiritual sense which it's important to me, and it's a little bit difficult to explain, but when I travel, um, and as, you know, I was at the Frankfurt Book Fair last year, and even though you meet nice people and all that, you know, it's, it is a city, it's a big city, and I felt so out of place. And I was out of place. Um, my German publisher, I'll tell you, this is a funny story, by the way. My, my German publisher sent a, um, a representative to, to guide me, you know, because they, I think they sensed that that was necessary. But I actually got lost on the train. Um, I was looking for the, where you could buy some food. I didn't think one could get lost on a train. I did. So, I don't get lost in the woods, though. <laughs> it's um, no, I wasn't meant for the big city. Well, <clears throat> I think that um, it's not just um, we've we've perhaps hinted that there are psychological as well as physical benefits reconnecting with nature. But it's funny these days. I noticed that a lot of uh, people are recommending, whether it's uh, traditional medicine or whether it's sort of modern medicine therapists and doctors and nurses and things are are even psychologists that are recommending people spend time in nature and this can be for for both uh physical and mental problems and but speaking about it like it's something new and having a tendency not everyone as well or not everyone by any means but i've noticed a tendency to sort of again commodify it you know as if it's something that again is there for us to take advantage of and exploit uh for our benefit and I think sometimes what's missing is the the, the full reconnection of uh, the understanding of the 
the part the part that humankind plays in the entire web of life, you know, from beginning to end, that the countryside is not something to be visited for a day to take in the air, as it were, as people in London, the Victorian age used to do, and then return to all this mm. smoke and filth again. So it's the only thing I find missing from a lot of um, therapeutic people working therapeutically with um, nature is something that you bring when you speak about it, which is this deep historical sense of connection that we have always been part of nature. This is not something we that we're now trying to do as, oh, you know, we're so advanced, we now got to this point where we can, you know, correspond with nature. It, it was, it's the opposite way around. I don't think we are advanced. I don't think we are more advanced than we were 2,000 or 5,000 years ago. I don't believe that. We just have more advanced tools. Yeah, in fact, you could argue that the idea of progress, um, as, as we currently view it, um, has been down um, a blind alley, really. Um, and if you take that and with, with like evolution, it's almost like it's oh yeah, it's, sure. it's, you know it's a branch off of evolution that was a wrong turn, and that the, the progress that we haven't made has been within ourselves because what we find ourselves now very bereft, don't we, in the early twenty first century, um, very lost and confused about, about questions of meaning and purpose because we have lost this connection. And finally, I think. Now that the systems on which so many of us depend, industrial systems, uh, you know, economic systems are, are under threat and in some cases crumbling, that we're being forced to, to look ourselves in the eye in that respect and understand that uh, a lot of the progress that we made has been illusory. And what we've actually been trying to do in many ways is escape from our, ourselves. Yeah. Well, um, as I said, I don't think we have advanced uh, a lot. Mentally, nor, nor, nor physically. Uh, it is, I read somewhere that, um, the reason why we still have back problems, like, you know, you have a pain in the back and, uh, you can get a prolapse in your, your, your lower back, for instance, or your neck. Uh, the reason why evolution hasn't fixed that for us is that we we don't have to evolve because we have all these tools and uh, warm houses and uh, we are advanced in that way. So <laughs> we stopped evolving in a way, and that's a very interesting theory. Yeah. So so I when I when I talk about mental health, I tend to look at us as part of a uh, much broader picture and. Uh, I draw upon the literature from hundreds of years back, the Hovamol, and for instance, the wisdom of the Hovamol, and, and other almost, you know, religious, not religious, but, uh, but, uh, ancient books. And, uh, I find that there are these eternal truths, right? Uh, that we can actually trust. It's always been like this. So we can trust that to be true. So I don't think things are very complicated necessarily when it comes to mental health. To talk about that, you know, we have a few things that we need and uh, when those are missing, we get unhappy and depressed. So um, do you feel this is, I don't know if this is something you've ever addressed or thought about, but I do feel that there's some kind of natural 
teleology, some kind of natural drive to life on Earth, that it's striving towards something, all life on Earth is. And we may be in some ways the most sentient beings on the Earth at the moment. We can maybe include dolphins and whales and that as well. But So we may sense that we're striving towards something, but we don't know what it is. But maybe nature itself doesn't know, but it's it's like something like a green shoot growing out of the ground. It's reaching towards the light. Perhaps we have, over time, come to, again, be disconnected from that. It is something that that a lot of ancient teachings, mystery traditions, all the main religions actually talk about, you know, this drive, uh, this evolutionary sort of drive. Even if we perhaps feel that over-industrializing our civilizations was a bit of a wrong turn, because we were, after all, basing the lives of, of millions and now billions of human beings on systems that were not sustainable over the very long term. So do you feel that that life on Earth, given that it has evolved over billions of years, would have reached some sort of stasis, even if we had kept more traditional connection with the Earth, the sort that you're passionate about? Or do you feel that we were still... Can you imagine that the evolution... Maybe this is the simplest way to put it. Can you imagine that... Take the figures from the Viking Age, the people you write about. If those societies like that one and the others around the Earth had not gone down the route that we have, burning oil and building huge machines and weapons, that a different path could... We'd still have evolved. We could still have progressed, but it would have looked very different. Yeah, you mean if we... If we... If there hadn't been an, you know, an industrial revolution, well, we would have um, been uh, farmers, basically. <laughs> I, it's uh, it's very difficult to imagine, but um, how society would have looked. But I want to say that I am very glad that we do have these. We have had these technological this technological progress and for instance we have uh, antibiotics and I got a uh, an infection once you know and uh, with a uh, high rate of uh, lots of people die from that you know um, I can't remember the English name now but it's it's something that lots of people get it's very common uh, so I, I don't want to sit here and say that well I wish everything would have been uh, as it was a thousand years ago, but because that's a little bit hypocritical. You know? I might not have been able to say, sit here and talk if we didn't have had, uh, if we hadn't have had evolved through, um, you know, to today. I guess your question is, where would we have gotten without things like oil, uh, which way would we have traveled as a species maybe we would have i guess it's it's guesswork we would have discovered other uh sources of uh, energy and fuel earlier watching you as you mentioned I mean, what you do is not so much writing but when you're sharing your 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 thoughts uh, with the world is made possible by technology. There's actually an American writer uh, called John Michael Greer, and he's been a guest on my show many times over the years. And he, in one of his books called The Ecotechnic Future, he sets out a vision for a, a future human society with 
um, the best of traditional technology, traditional skills, augmented and melded with the best that we can salvage from what we have now, that what we, what will be sustainable a hundred years from now, two hundred years from now, because there's no guarantee we're going to have an internet, you know, even a century from now. We might have, might look different. So that's a vision for uh, our human societies that resonated with me. We're clearly at a point, I don't think, where we can keep churning through the Earth's resources and having more, more, more. I don't think it's possible for every human being. It's very easy. I have to interrupt you there. It's very easy. It's very easy to to predict where we are going when it comes to uh, energy and Mm. where should we get the energy. That's nuclear power. It's because if we keep going in this pace, there is no way that wind power, solar power can keep up with with the demand for for power when we run out of uh, oil and gas. Uh, so that, you know, we have nuclear power. I don't like that idea. <laughs> but it's, um, people seem to make that question very complicated. But it's, I again, I'm not an expert, but it's it looks like that's the only option if we don't change uh, or, uh, you know, reduce our energy consumption. Consumption. Yeah, I, I think I think you're right. There's many problems with it. Many problems. I don't yep. think anyone's really Absolutely. worked out yet what to do with the, the waste byproducts. No, but I, I don't support it at all, no. Mm. But I, I think you're right. I think for people for people who are saying, I, I, I think you're right that we cannot have energy at the level we currently have it using green and renewable technology. I don't think it's possible. For one thing, all of the wind and solar and everything else depends on fossil fuels for their manufacture and maintenance. That's the main reason. So I think the only way to keep the lights on at the levels that we have, you know, you see a picture of Earth taken from the International Space Station and you see all the lights all around the world. You want to keep it like that. I think there's no other option but nuclear, but you're right. I don't like that either. So I think something like renewable technologies, wind, solar, wave, um, etc., but on a much smaller scale and crucially more localized, you know, because I don't know if you've met, if you have any technology like this at your home or if you know anybody who does, but solar panels to power a city, not so useful, but solar panel on your roof to heat your water is very useful. Yes, yes. I am planning to go, go off grid and, um, it's not going to happen this year or next year, but that's, that's, that's the goal. Um, and this is Norway, so it's going to take some effort, especially in winter. But uh, I'm going to cut the not not manually <laughs> the the cord to the to the to the power grid. Um, and there are two reasons for that because you know I'm not so um, it's it's not idealistic that I reasons behind that, but it's mostly because I want my independence. And that's a bit extreme <laughs> for for most people, but also it's because I want to prove that it's actually possible and it's much more environmentally friendly to, to, to do it like that. And um, uh, I know other people who are doing it in Norway. It's possible. It's very possible. So that's a goal for me. Just want to say that. <laughs> well, you mentioned independence there. Who wouldn't want that? Mm. But I think since the big industrial 
civilization, the big industrial societies and systems which began to be challenged in the late 20th century into the early 21st. There's been more and more uh, a tendency to control from, from governments and yeah. yes. other organizations mm-hmm. because I think that many people, I mean, it doesn't take a genius, but I think many people at the top can see big problems coming down the line and they're very concerned about unruly breakdown in societies. So I think step by step, there's been an effort to, and some of this may be well-intentioned, there's been an effort to get more of a control grid around particularly big societal centers and and heavily, heavily populated nations so that as things become more challenging, they already have the mechanisms to try and stop collapse. That concludes part one of our interview. Part two will be available soon in the subscribers area at legalizefreedom.com. Legalizefreedom.com.